First Peter three eighteen says, "For it's better to suffer for doing good." This is verse seventeen to get the context. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Now verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This text is written on the back of your scripture sheet if you want to look at it during the sermon. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired and instructed the apostles of the Lord Jesus to write down the divine truths of the gospel, which we can read with our own eyes and meditate on in our own minds. Thank you for these sacred words, which are your words and your truth given for the divine victory of Christ over death and evil. Grant us now the guidance of your spirit that the truths in this passage might come alive to us that Jesus might come alive to us and our understanding of our faith be cemented and our joy increased as we lay open the sacred text. In Jesus' unmatchable name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to learn some things about Christ's suffering. We're going to learn three things. That it was sufficient, that it was substitutionary, and that it was effectual. Well, if we've been traveling through this first letter of 1 Peter, uh, this letter of 1 Peter is becoming evident that certain themes are being repeated by Peter. He had concerns for the people of God and certain truths he wanted them and us to understand. And one of the evident themes in 1 Peter is that of suffering. We're learning that the sufferings that we go through are no accident, but they're divinely ordained for several reasons. Some sufferings come to us just as the normal uh, aspects of living in a sin-damaged world. We have to suffer from the effects of sin all around us. We also are learning that suffering can come to us because... We belong to Jesus Christ. And as the enemies of the kingdom of God persecuted him, so they may persecute us. We also have been learning that suffering can, can result from our own sins, from our own neglect, our own law-breaking. In other words, we may reap what we sow when we demonstrate bad or illegal behavior. But Peter's main concern seems to be for his fellow believers who are suffering for their faith in Jesus, who are suffering because they're living lives of righteousness and good works, and yet they're being mistreated and maligned. Well, Peter always tries to help these believers put their suffering into perspective by recalling to them the Lord Jesus Christ who is the supreme example of a righteous man who suffered unjustly. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet he suffered from his fellow countrymen who were offended by him, or they were jealous of him, or they just hated him because he was holy. 
and made them uncomfortable in their cherished sins. They were in darkness, and he was the light. They just wanted him to stay away, to go away. Well, in the previous verse, verse 17, says, For it is better for doing, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then this leads right into our text today, verse 18. And Peter tells us why it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. It's because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. He suffered for doing good. Amen. He'd done no evil, only good. Yet he suffered. He suffered at the hands of sinners and from evil powers. He was the innocent one who suffered, though he'd done nothing wrong. So we want to consider Christ's suffering today. We want to understand some things about why he suffered, how he suffered, and what were results of his suffering. Our Lord Jesus was a lovely Savior, but he was a suffering Savior. He was the God-man, fully God, fully man in one person. But his deity did not lessen his sufferings as a man. He had a human body and human emotions just like you and me. So he felt the sharp pain of rejection by his townspeople, by his own family. He felt the ravaging pains of hunger in his body as he went out into the wilderness with no food. One week passed, then two weeks, and then 40 days. His deity did not lessen the excruciating difficulty of surviving in the wilderness with no food for 40 days. It took a heck of a strong man to do that. A determined man, a courageous man. Jesus did it. Nor did his divinity, that is his divine nature, lessen one bit the sting of the whip that tore the flesh off his back when the Roman governor ordered him to be flogged. His human frame suffered all the torments of his pierced hands and feet that nailed him to the Roman cross. The weight of his body was pulling on the nails and he was suffocating slowly or being unable to breathe. Meanwhile, on either side of him, the thieves were castigating him, insulting him, and the population passed in front of him and did the same thing. Jesus Christ, our Lord, suffered greatly, but his greatest suffering, his worst suffering, came as he hung on the cross and God, his heavenly Father, poured out his white-hot anger, his wrath against the sins of his people. He poured out his anger towards us on his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the sinless and innocent one, came under the burden of all the sins of all God's people from all ages. All these sins were laid on Jesus and God's unmitigated, full-powered wrath against human sin was poured about poured out upon Jesus. No wonder he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So our text says this today, 
For Christ also suffered once for sins. First thing we want to take note of today is that Christ's suffering was sufficient to bring us to God. Amen. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The text says that Christ put away sin. That is, He destroyed it. He erased it. He eliminated it. He did it how? By the sacrifice of Himself. Nothing else was needed to put away sin because of the nature of the one who was putting it away. Amen. Jesus was the incarnated God. He was God who had taken to Himself our full humanity. His sacrifice, therefore the giving up of His own life, was sufficient to remove sins because of the power and glory and divinity of the one who was being sacrificed. Under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Covenant, animals were used as provisional, that is temporary, sacrifices for human sin, but they could never actually remove even the slightest human sin. But the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was a completely different story because he was an entirely different being than a sheep or a cow or a goat. He was a human being, but he was not just an ordinary human being. He was the very son of the living God himself who had lived eternally at the Father's side, at the bosom of the Father. He was the infinite God, unlimited in all his power and glory and majesty. Therefore, he had the power and the ability to bear the sins of millions of his people in his own body, to bear their sins and pay the debt they owed to God. A goat could not remove the sin and guilt of even the simplest little white lie. But Jesus' sacrifice of himself could fully pay, eradicate, and cast as far as the east as from the west every sin of every one of his people who ever lived in any age in any place. Amen. It was the person of the Lord Jesus who made all the difference. Jesus' offering of himself was a better sacrifice. An effective sacrifice. A sacrifice which accomplished the goal of paying for, of atoning for human sin. Of absorbing the full wrath of God for his people's sin because of their lack of love for the Creator. Because of their failure to give him thanks. Their neglect of his worship. Their rebellion and disobedience to him. Their selfish behavior before God and other people, their self-centeredness, their self-glorifying behavior, their wickedness and cruelty, their hatred and lust and greed and envy and every other sin in the book. Jesus paid for all these sins for all of his people. He could do it. The only reason he could do it because of who he was. He was the Word made flesh who had come to live among those whom he had created. Yet they did not recognize him. Instead they persecuted him and had him put to death. So Christ's suffering was sufficient because of the nature of his person, 
of his being. Only the eternal God become man could do such a miracle. It was the greatest miracle that ever happened. One man could bear the sins of many. This is the work of God himself, and it is truly marvelous in our sight. You see, Christ's work was sufficient for closing the insurmountable gap between the holy God and sinful people. Reconciliation, the bringing together of two warring parties, was impossible because God was too holy and he would not and could not lower his standards in order to have fellowship with humanity. And humanity, on the other hand, was too immersed and captivated by sin, not even able to make the slightest move toward God. Humanity was paralyzed by sin, yea, even more than paralyzed. Humanity was absolutely and totally dead spiritually. Something was needed. A divine rescue was needed. An outside force was needed in order to move humanity toward God. A fire of life would have to be lit within the breast of humanity where only burned the fire of sin. The fire of sin would have to be extinguished. And another fire, the fire of life, would have to be ignited. This is exactly what happened. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Amen. How do you explain the way that God saves sinners? Why would God even bother to save rebels and totally self-absorbed people who cared nothing for Him, in fact, who were running in the opposite direction away from Him? It says it right here in Ephesians 2.4. It was because of His mercy... And his love. If God were strictly just and did not have mercy and did not have love, he would be perfectly right to send the whole human race to hell to be done with us. Maybe create another universe and start over with a human race. But no, he did not abandon his people. He did not give up on us. His mercy and love were sufficient to bridge the canyon between his holiness and our sin. His sacrifice was sufficient. It was abundantly sufficient to close the gap between God the Father and us. It was the will of God to save his people through the sacrifice of his son. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One sacrifice given for all time. Only one was sufficient because it was the sacrifice of the very Son of God. No less than God incarnate was sent to rescue his people. The divine rescue was accomplished when Christ died on the cross, rose again, and ascended back to the Father. It was done. It was finished. The payment for sins was sufficient. The people were now reconciled to God. But Christ's suffering, his death, was not only sufficient 
to bring us to God, but his suffering was substitutionary. The text says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. When Christ died and rose again, a great cosmic transfer took place. Something happened that had never happened in the history of humanity. In fact, it could not even have been imagined. For one thing, humanity was ignorant of two great facts. Number one, the holiness of God. And number two, the utter sinfulness of humanity. Now, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, his grandson Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob and those 12 tribes, they of all the peoples of the earth had been given a revelation of this reality, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity. humanity. But the problem was, and it was seen over the centuries, that they could not keep God's holy law. They could not measure up to God's high standard of holiness, so they fell miserably short. And so they remained condemned for their sins just as much as the pagan Gentiles were condemned for their sins. So they had to cry out in the words of Paul in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is given in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer for the question of how the holy creator of heaven and earth can join himself in fellowship with sinful men and women and boys and girls, is that through Jesus Christ something happened. What was it that happened? As our text says, the righteous one suffered for the unrighteous ones. A great substitutionary transaction took place. We can read about this even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It also says in Isaiah 53, in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant makes many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Yahweh laid on Jesus all our iniquity, all our sin. When Jesus was hung up on that cross by the Roman soldiers, something happened at the same time. The invisible hand of God was laid upon Jesus and all the sins of God's people of all the ages were laid upon Jesus. A cosmic transfer took place. A cosmic substitution was enacted. We read about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A great substitution happened. God took our sin and placed it all on his son who knew no sin. Then God took Christ's righteousness and laid it on us who had only known sin. It happened through the cross. 
It's experienced in history as each person called by the grace of God is born again and believes on Christ. God maintained His justice by punishing our sin as our sins deserved. For to sin against the holy God is an act of cosmic rebellion. To raise our fist in the face of God and in essence tell Him to leave us alone is a sin that deserves everlasting punishment. To ignore God, to neglect Him, to fail to love and honor Him is an act of impudence, an act of ingratitude that deserves divine punishment. And sadly, our lives were filled constantly with this kind of attitude and behavior. It may not have been obvious or overt to people around us, but God saw into the inner recesses of our heart. He saw the lust for self-glorification, the lust for independence from God, and His hand of judgment was set to fall. And it will indeed fall. But look, wait a minute, something's happening. A man has appeared, and he steps in between God and us, and he allows himself to be lifted up on Golgotha's cross outside Jerusalem. He offers himself as the righteous sacrifice for the unrighteous lives of his people. And God accepts the offering, and he pours out his wrath upon his son, and his son fully absorbs that wrath. And when it's all over... When God's justice is satisfied, the people are declared no longer guilty. The temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom, indicating the way into the presence of God has now been opened through the sacrifice of Christ. God's people are now justified, forgiven, free, welcome into God's presence. How could all of this happen? It happens because of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's work on the cross, God's righteousness is maintained, yet sinners can be forgiven. Romans 3.26 speaks of Christ's death on the cross and says, This was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we're seeing today is that Christ's suffering was sufficient to bring us to God, and that Christ's suffering was substitutionary, for the righteous one gave himself for the salvation of the unrighteous people of God. Thirdly, we want to consider the fact that Christ's suffering was effectual, to bring us to God. Now what does that word effectual mean? It means producing an effect. Having adequate power or force to produce the effect. Amen. Ephesians, for example, Ephesians 3.6 says, 3.7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, says Paul, to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. It's the same idea here. The effective working of God's power made Paul, a former persecutor of the church, a minister of God's grace. God called Paul 
to be his minister and work powerfully within him to make him an effective instrument to bring the gospel to the various people groups in the Roman Empire. So Christ's suffering was effectual to bring us to God. Christ suffered and died for a particular purpose, for an end result, to bring us to God. The idea here is that he is to bring us into a right relationship. This this verb, this idea of of bringing us to God is a word that was used to denote the bringing of a person before a tribunal or a royal court. It also could be used to denote the ritual act of bringing a sacrifice to God or the consecration of persons to God's service that he might bring us to God. The great truth to be seen here is that Christ brought us to God. We did not bring ourselves. That's right. Isaiah 40 verse 11 speaking of the coming Messiah says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his bosoms. He will carry them and gently lead those who are with young. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You didn't bring yourself. The blood of Christ that brought you near to God. How did God do this? Well, the text goes on to say this. He brought us near to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It was the death of Christ, only His death. That was the mean, the means by which God was able to bring us near to Himself. There's no other way in which a human being can come near to God. All the thousands and millions of animal sacrifices under the Jewish sacrificial system did not bring any single worshiper near to God in a saving way. It just made them aware of their sin. No person who ever lives on earth can come near to God, that is, can come into his fellowship, except through Christ and his death and his resurrection. You cannot get to God by your own good works. Merely going to church will not bring you near to God in the sense of being saved. It's good to go to church. We need to go to church, but we must have more than that. Christ himself, by his death and resurrection, by his working in our lives, by his Holy Spirit, he alone can bring us to God. A person cannot get to God through Muhammad, or through Joseph Smith of the Mormon religion, or through Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventist religion, or through any of the many Hindu gods. There's only one way of salvation from sins and the reception of eternal life. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. Jesus summed it up in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is very specific and very exclusive there. 
He was God in the flesh. He was speaking the truth. He himself was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Being put to death in the flesh, it says. The reality of Christ's physical death. Christ left heaven to become incarnated of the Virgin Mary as a full human Jewish male, but he did not lose a single drop of his deity. But he had to become man in order to be able to die and save us from our sins. One man substituting for other men. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We can never underestimate the necessity of Jesus' physical death. That's the only way that God is able to save us from our sins. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, can you imagine that? That God would take sinners like us and present us as holy and blameless? No charge whatsoever against us, above reproach? He can find nothing wrong with us because he's looking at Jesus' righteousness, not our own. Amen. Hebrews 2.9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What was it? It was the suffering of death. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, Christ died the death for his people. But it goes on to say, but made alive in the Spirit. What does this expression mean? Well, this is a difficult phrase to interpret. There's different opinions, but uh, the word Spirit here, I'll give you what I think is probably correct. The word Spirit here does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but to Christ's spiritual nature in contrast to his physical nature. Uh, David Wheaton said this once Christ had undergone in full and full and had undergone in full God's judgment on sin his spirit was released from the body Alan Stibbs says even before his resurrection he was already able to move freely in the spiritual world as the victorious man The next verse lends weight to this interpretation, verse 19, in which he went in his spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven. So between Christ's death and burial and his resurrection during that time, the scriptures indicate that in his spirit he had a particular ministry. We're going to learn more about that next week. And Wayne will go into greater detail. <laughs> But the point to grasp here is that Christ died for our sins by means of the sacrifice of his physical body on the cross. Never underestimate the importance of his suffering and death. Amen. He poured out blood. 
on Calvary's cross. This physical death was sufficient. A sufficient payment for our sins. It was a substitutionary death. He had to die as a human being in order to bring other human beings into the presence of God. People whom he had loved from before the creation of the world. He had to go and rescue them by his own death. Do you know today that Christ's suffering and death on the cross was totally sufficient to pay for all of your sins? Do you know that his death was a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people? That it's the only way by which a sinner can be saved from his or her sins? How do you respond to the great sacrifice that Christ did when he went to the cross to pay for the sins of his people? There's only one proper response. It is the grateful reception of his sacrifice into our own hearts in humble worship, in devoted service to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. If you've not done so already, will you not repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the way of life, forgiveness, and fellowship with God. The Jesus way is the only way to God. Amen. Let us go that way and never turn back. Let's pray. Holy and righteous Father, thank you that you spared not your only Son, but gave him up freely for the redemption, the rescue, the salvation of your people. Bring us all into your heavenly kingdom that we may evermore fellowship with you and with your people in this world and in the world to come. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.